From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I do think that people think ambition should look different on women, especially women of color. I've been punished for my ambition. That's Simone Sanders. She's a political strategist and spokesperson who has held top communications roles on multiple Democratic presidential campaigns. At the age of 25, she served as national press secretary to Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign. And in 2020, she was a senior advisor to Joe Biden. Most recently, she served in the White House as senior advisor and chief spokesperson to Vice President Kamala Harris, a position she left late last year. Over the last several years, Sanders has become one of the highest profile political staffers in recent memory. She's been the subject of profiles in the New York Times and the Washington Post. And in 2020, she published a memoir called No, You Shut Up. Sanders is the host of a brand new MSNBC opinion show called Simone. I spoke with her about her meteoric rise in politics, how she intends to reach non-political group chats, and what it was really like to work for Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Kamala Harris. One quick note, my conversation with Simone Sanders was recorded before the news broke of Justice Alito's leaked draft opinion, which would overturn Roe v. Wade. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus. Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen. So, folks, I know it's been a heavy week. What would the draft opinion from Samuel Alito about the overturning of Roe v. Wade having been leaked? I'm still digesting and processing it, as I'm sure many of you are. If you haven't already, check out my in-depth conversation with Joyce Vance, which we made available to everyone in the Stay Tuned feed, about our thoughts, or at least our preliminary thoughts, about that opinion, what it means for the country, what it means for the Constitution, what it means for reproductive rights in America. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Beth Adaimi. Why are January 6th committee hearings now going to take place in June? We need the information ASAP. Drip, drip, drip is not helpful. We need a full picture now, not later. So Beth, I hear where you're coming from. It's been a long time. The insurrection was a while back. But I would note a couple of things. One, it's already May 5th at the time that this podcast drops. June is only a few weeks away. Among other things, the committee needs the time to interview 
as many witnesses as possible, and there's still some who are on the horizon, to resolve disputes with other witnesses who are being intransigent, maybe to figure out a way for other witnesses who haven't been uh, sought yet to come and testify, including members of Donald Trump's family. There are also hordes and hordes of documents and communications to look through to get their ducks in a row. I think it's also the case that the committee wants to make sure that the public hearings make a very big substantive splash. And there may be some thought that in June, when there's possibly less news about the Supreme Court or about the war in Ukraine, that people in America will be able to focus more directly on their investigation with respect to January 6th. That leads me to a related question from Lori Bader, who asks, what information will the 1-6 committee present in public hearings that we didn't already learn from the second impeachment hearings? Well, Lori, there's a, a ton of information that had not come to light at the time of the second impeachment hearings, which took place only weeks after the January 6th insurrection. Hundreds of more witnesses have come forward and given information about what they knew, including people inside the White House, people inside the Justice Department, people otherwise in the orbit of Donald Trump. There are, as I mentioned a moment ago, literally hundreds of thousands of pages of documents and texts and other material that the committee has in its possession that the House and Senate didn't have at the time of the second impeachment. So there's there's a ton more material. There's a ton more information. We have cooperating witnesses among the people who have been arrested. We have seditious conspiracy charges against some of those folks. And you see from the indictment in that case against the Oath Keepers that there are actually encrypted messages that are in the possession of the committee. There's a whole heck of a lot of information we will learn in the public hearings that we didn't know from the second impeachment hearings. Now, if you asked a slightly different question, which is what will we learn in the public hearings that we don't already know from the ongoing drip, drip, drip of the 1-6 investigation, that's a harder question to answer. I think a lot of the information that's come into the possession of the committee has either been disclosed or has been reported and leaked out. My view, though, is there's something about focused public hearings where committee members are very directed in how they ask questions, in which witnesses they call, after having had closed-door sessions for hours and hours and hours with them, it presents a story presented in a way that I think is very digestible to the public and brings home, I think, some of the horrors of that day and who is responsible and who is conspiring with whom. And even if there's not a lot of new revelations, I think the presentation in prime time by members of Congress uh, may, in fact, move the needle on how people think about it. This question comes in an email from Tom, who asks, what are the legal implications, if any, for Marjorie Taylor Greene after she claimed not being able to recall whether she sent text messages to Mark Meadows advising for former President Trump to impose martial law? Obviously referring to the fact that there's a text in the possession of the 1-6 committee between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mark Meadows from January 17th, 2021, in which Greene writes, in our private chat with only members, Several are saying the only way to save our republic is for Trump to call martial, spelled M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L, martial law. I just wanted you to tell him. They stole this election. We all know they will destroy our country next. So I think the implication of your question, Tom, is isn't that a lie? And doesn't that subject Marjorie Taylor Greene to perjury charges because lying to Congress is against the law? And while I agree with you, that as a general matter, it's really, really hard to believe and find credible the idea that you wouldn't remember having some conversation by text with the chief of staff to the sitting president of the United States about the declaration of martial law 
I guess it's within the realm of possibility. And when people bring perjury charges, you want to be absolutely positive and sure and be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person has lied about some fact. What you'll find, and depending on your circumstance and depending on the situation, you may find it implausible and even galling. It is a tried and true tactic of witnesses in response to questions, not to say no, not to say yes, but to say, I don't recall. It's just a little bit of a harder thing to prove. And in some cases, quite difficult to prove. Sometimes you'll see in court, you know, an executive who's being tried for something takes the stand and testifies they don't remember giving a particular directive or a particular order. And they will have established that they're very, very busy people. And they send a lot of emails and they get a lot of texts. And even something very, very important, it's hard to prove because it's subjective and something in someone's mind. It's hard to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is lying about their memory. Although we in the public, as we're watching the testimony, can roll our eyes. I'll tell you a quick story. When I was in the Senate and leading the investigation with respect to politicization of the Justice Department, there was a witness, a very significant witness, who I deposed for many hours, and he was a high-ranking official at the Justice Department. And the testimony took up probably a few hundred pages of transcript space. And we had a follow-up deposition to answer some additional questions. And at the beginning of the follow-up deposition, the lawyer for this witness says, you know, before we begin with further questions, Mr. Barrara, I do want to put on the record something from my client. And I said, sure, go ahead. And the lawyer for the witness opened up the transcript to some page. I'll, I don't remember the page, but say, you know, page 178. And he said, you know, Mr. Mr. Client, here at line 14 on page 178, where Mr. Barrara asked you a question and you answered no. Do you want to clarify that answer? And the witness said, yes, uh, and that line, when I said no, what I meant to say was, I don't recall. So that, that's an example of someone being very careful not to make a flat statement. It happens all the time. It can be frustrating and it can be something that's not believable, but it does help in preventing legal action against you. We'll be right back with my conversation with Simone Sanders. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. In 2020, on Super Tuesday, as Joe Biden was beginning his victory speech, a protester rushed the stage. Simone Sanders, then Biden's senior advisor, did something unusual for a press person. She tackled the protester. 
It was a stark example of the kind of thing Sanders has become known for, being strong and fearless and protecting her bosses and their reputations at all costs. Simone Sanders, welcome to the show. Greetings. Thank you for having me, Preet. Very excited. So am I. So before we get to some other stuff, congratulations are in order. I understand you're getting married. I am August 13th. August 13th. This summer. Yes, to the most amazing man. That's a very auspicious date. I didn't realize that that's the date I got sworn in. Oh, it is? <laughs> yes, oh, okay. As U.S. attorney back 13 years ago. So. Oh, wow. So congratulations on the upcoming wedding. Congratulations on your new show on MSNBC, which we'll talk about a little bit. But so here's my first question, and you have to be very honest, okay? What's tougher, planning a wedding, planning a new show, or being the national press secretary for Uh, Bernie Sanders? (laughs) I would argue (laughs) being press secretary to Senator Sanders is tougher, it just it just requires a little more. You know, I have all this help in planning a show. I have a really amazing team that I've assembled. And my executive producer, she's a, a newsroom veteran. So she's no stranger to her way around the control room. Unlike me, who's like, can someone explain what a SOT is? What is SOT? Sound on tape, by the way, for folks who are wondering. Oh, oh, I don't even know that. But when I worked for Senator Sanders, you know, we had a ragtag team. It was it was like working at a, a very fancy startup. And so there were three people in the communications department when I started. Myself, the communications director, and the deputy communications director. <laughs> Wait, what do you mean fancy? I mean... What was fancy about the startup? We did get free Ben and Jerry's on a regular pre. Come on now. <laughs> Vermont has its privileges. So we're going to get to Bernie Sanders and and other folks that you've worked with and for in a moment. But you were just telling me before we started taping that you had a uh, great time this weekend at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I didn't go this year. I've been in the past. Do you think it's a useful exercise? There are people who criticize it, say it's access journalism. It's it's There's too much cozying up between the press and people who are in office. Do you have a view of that? I do think it is worthwhile. I think people forget that the White House Correspondents' Dinner is a fundraiser and it raises money for scholarships. So there were more than 2,600 people in the room. Is a the largest room I've ever been in since COVID, Preet. Now, I had COVID about three weeks ago at this point. I'm negative. Uh, thankfully, I tested negative after five days. So I, I felt invincible. You know, put me in a, take me to a concert, honey, in the middle of a high school gym and I'm going to be okay. <laughs> but maybe in a month, uh, I will be holding on to my mask really tight again. But all of those people that came, they were either guests of news organizations or, as Trevor Noah joked, very rich people. But all those folks bought tickets and all of those tickets support scholarships. So I think it's worthwhile for that. And in a time where the media apparatus, particularly journalists who cover politicians, have been under attack, given the last president of the United States of America in Russia right now, uh, journalists are not free to write and say whatever they want. Um, in many places around the globe, that is the case. The thing that is special about the United States of America is that journalists have the ability, have the right to cover people in power, whether they be politicians or uh, CEOs of, of social media companies, and ask the questions and write what they want to write. So I think we should always have take opportunities to cele- celebrate journalism. And this year especially, I think the press need a little, a little extra love. 
Have you ever come across a politician, because I don't think there is one, on either side of the aisle, but obviously you know better the people on the progressive side, who didn't sometimes get annoyed or angry at the press and coverage of them? I have not. <laughs> I have not. I think everyone is annoyed with coverage of them. There's no such human, right? No. If you cover someone long enough, they're going to have an issue with what you say. Are there people who you think, you know, on the spectrum of being irritated and annoyed by coverage, who was sort of among the kinds of people that you've dealt with who were least annoyed? Least annoyed. Okay, so I I, I mean, I think it's a difficult question for me to answer because yeah. in general, I think everybody that I've worked for at some point was uh, had that, okay, here they go again with whatever story. <laughs> Literally every single person. Right. There's not a person I've advised or worked for that didn't have at least a couple stories that irritated them or, you know, when you see some of these reporters coming like, okay, this one's going... This one's going to have the questions and this is the person you need to count to two, count to three before you answer. We want to make sure we don't want, right. we want bad sound bites. Um, but it's not as, so I think every, every single person is irritated. Um, I have never worked for anyone. And I'm, I'm also thinking about the gubernatorial candidates I've worked for, state legislative candidates, not just the, the people who've ran for president or the vice president of the United States of America. I, I've never worked for anyone who, who was who who was fixated on it, mm -hmm. and I, I, I mean maybe I'm I'm lucky, right? I've worked for I've worked for a range of people, so they they've got some other stuff, but they were not fixated on the coverage of them, whether it be positive or negative, and that is a good thing for a communications professional. Um, I think about Vice President Harris. Uh, Fox News has a, a loop dedicated to bashing her every single day. Uh, Russia has bots or had some bots. The troll farms have really died down since the war in Ukraine has been waging. I guess they're a little busy with misinformation about what Russia is doing. Um, but even her, who someone who was targeted every single day, she didn't come in fixated on it. Um, it is not something that dominated the, the conversations that we had. She was aware of the coverage of herself, just as President Biden is aware of his coverage. Senator Sanders, very aware. The most unbothered person I think I've worked for is Senator Sanders. He is unbothered. He is just like, look, y'all know I've been saying the same thing for 45 years. <laughs> right. Get with it. And he's he's just comfortable in his skin. Yeah. And honestly, he... Uh, you know, Senator Sanders is not someone that in, throughout his career has benefited from the attention of the broader media apparatus. Right. So he is someone that is, you know, he was he was used to people not hanging on every word, covering everything, single thing that he says. He was used to finding organic and, and innovative ways to get his message out, because when the man ran for president, people weren't covering him. I remember sitting in our head, our headquarters in Burlington once and and Senator Sanders literally was about to give remarks somewhere. He had walked out and at least two news stations had an empty Trump podium uh just being held well with with anchors talking over the picture of the empty Trump podium while Bernie Sanders is doing an event. So somebody like that, they are not, you know, Senator Sanders is like, you're going to get what you're going to get. And sometimes they're going to cover me. Sometimes they're not. But I'm going to find innovative ways to get my message out. Yeah, no, it's a good attitude. Now you, let's go back to you for a moment, <laughs> going some years back, but not too many years back because you're a young person. My understanding is you've always known you wanted to be in media. Could you tell my audience who Donna Burns is? 
<laughs> Donna Burns was the TV reporter I would pretend to be as a child. So I would pick up a spoon or a remote control or a bottle. And I would say, this is Donna Burns reporting live. I don't know where <laughs> Donna Burns worked pre. I don't know what she was reporting on. I was going to ask you, you don't know what network Donna Burns was at? She was a freelance journalist. I see. <laughs> and what was her beat? Um, Anything and everything. The culture <laughs> at the time. Sometimes the beat was the kitchen table. And that was, I can remember as far back as being a child, maybe like seven or eight. So it is a full circle moment for me to be launching a show on Saturday, May 7th on MSNBC, along with a streaming show the following Monday on Mondays and Tuesdays on demand on Peacock. Like I'm, I'm, I'm beyond elated and excited. And it is nothing but grace, goodwill, a lot of hard work and some prayers that got me here. And then very well plugged. Your, your, your team will be very happy. One could argue I am a communications professional, okay? I'm just saying. One could argue. It's, I think it's on the resume. <laughs> you know, people make a lot of the fact of the career you've had, how successful you've been, the, the things that you've led, and you're only 32 years old. Someone asked me recently, I'm 53. Someone was saying to me oh recently, goodness, you don't look a day over 41. Right? Oh, you, you really are don't. such a good communications professional. <laughs> <laughs> But someone someone was saying about the way they felt about their age, like they don't they don't think of themselves as being that age. And and I was asked, you know, how old do you in your head think you are? And I think often, I think I'm like eleven, because <laughs> I I feel I feel dumb a lot and I feel like a kid a lot. And let me ask that question of you. Do, do you how do you feel about your age? What do you what do you think your age is in your head? Well, last week I told someone I was thirty one, and my fiance reminded me that. I left 31 a long time ago. And I'm like, no, I'm 31. <laughs> Look, in my head, I'm a millennial. Uh, I'm a young person. And it and I and I think that there are so many dynamic young people out there in the world that are doing really amazing, innovative things. These young people, my peers, they are tastemakers, movers and shakers. These are people that are large and in charge. And so I, I just don't think people, people look at me and they say, oh my goodness, you're just, I'm not that special of a young person, right? I mean, I have found myself in the right places at the right time and have benefited from people speaking my name in rooms that I was not in. But I know some amazing people who are my age or younger, who are way smarter than I am, who are just blowing my mind with the things that they are doing in life and the plans that they have. So you and I are both ambitious people, and I always tell people ambition is good as long as it's you know pressed into good service, and you and you treat people well. But in, in just thinking about your trajectory and your background, and people saying you know wait your turn, wait your turn. Mm -hmm. That famous moment with Ken Cuccinelli told you to shut up. <laughs> you said basically, no, you shut up. No, you shut up. <laughs> no, you shut up. And can I finish, Simone? Will you just shut up for a minute and let me finish? Pardon me, sir. You Ken, don't get to tell America. me to shut up on national television. Hold on. I'm sorry. Under no circumstances do you get to speak to me in that matter. In. And then I wrote about it. Then you did in a, in a memoir. Do people think that female ambition is supposed to look different from male ambition? I'm not just talking about you. I'm also talking about Kamala Harris and others. Mm -hmm. Can you address that? I, I do think that people think ambition should look different on women, especially women of color. I've been punished for my ambition. 
I think it is amazing that I have this opportunity on MSNBC and on Peacock right now. I, when I go places now and I'm, whether I'm at the grocery store, I'm out at Target or I'm, you know, bumping to a, a, a group of young women somewhere. They are always telling me, I'm so grateful for you. I'm grateful for your voice. You know, you give me the confidence and the power to, you know, be myself. You're, you, you bald, curvy black girl. And I think that's amazing. But I have, um, been punished and locked out of a number of opportunities for simply being confident in who I am and not apologizing for my ambition. I'm good at what I do, Preet. Okay. I'm not, and I don't need to apologize for that. I'm good at what I do. I'm a really nice team player. I'm a hard worker. I will get up early and I'll stay up late um, because I believe that's what you need to do to uh, put forth ex excellence. And I brought that to every single thing that I have done. But there are people out there in the world that want me to be a little bit more humble about my ability. There are folks that say you should not be at, you know, saying what you want and you might need to, you know, jump in line and understand that there's a line. Look, I... Are those Russians? Are those <laughs> Russians saying that to you? <laughs> no, no. These are real people. Um, I haven't jumped any lines. I've just done my work. And I've benefited from people who have come before me, who of whom shoulders that I stand on, that have allowed me not to live the same struggles that they've lived. Why do people break barriers only to tell the next generation they supposed to struggle it out just like them? Well, what the hell did you break that barrier for? <laughs> people what want everyone. People want everyone to go uphill in the snow both ways, right? If they had to do, I'm that. not doing that. Give me a sled. <laughs> where can you answer? Where Where are you on the ideological spectrum? Do you care to say? I am a pragmatic progressive. <laughs> okay, like frankly, like most Black women in America, um, I. When I went to work for uh, the president's campaign in 2020, I got a lot of questions, so much so that I ended up having to do an interview so that I could just explain it in one place so I could go and do my work. And in that interview, I explained that the reason I can work for a Bernie Sanders and a Joe Biden is because my values and who I am and what I believe are not tied to one particular candidate. And I do think there is a generation, a number, a few generations of people who have been engaged in the political process, who have tied their hopes and their dreams and their values to a particular candidate. And that's not me. My values are are not looped up into Bernie Sanders, uh, Joe Biden, or uh, Vice President Kamala Harris. I anchor my values, and I think that has what that is what's allowed me to navigate, you know, through this world. Do you think, you know, it sounds like something implicit in what you're saying is, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that there's a little bit too much cult of personality uh, with politicians, there is. right? There is. Is that new? No, it's not new. Um, you can think of people who uh, feel felt very viscerally about uh, John F. Kennedy. I know people who feel very viscerally about Ronald Reagan. We also know people that feel very viscerally about former President Donald Trump or President Obama or uh, Secretary Hillary Clinton, right? There are um, politicians, elected officials, uh, they are icons in many communities. They are they're leaders, full, full stop. And because of that, people see them and it, it stirs up something in someone. That's, that's why I love politics, Preet. It's why I did it for so long, because the people who come out to political rallies, 
except for the Trump rallies. Now, I got to put an asterisk by this uh, <laughs> this explanation, but an asterisk there. Not the people that go to Trump rallies, but in general, the people that go out to political rallies, whether they be for Democrats, Republicans, or an independent senator from Vermont, they have to stand in line for sometimes hours. They wait to get in, then they're standing for sometimes 45 minutes before the person that they see comes to the stage and they speak sometimes for only 20 or 30 minutes and they are salivating on every single word because they believe that this person, whoever they may be, has the power and the opportunity to change their lives to make it better. That is a very powerful thing. And, and I understand how cult, you know, a cult personality can set in. But I think we need people who are willing to be independent thinkers. And uh, I just my my ideology isn't tied to a person. Yeah, that you should care about these things. You should fight for the causes you believe in. You should support candidates. I think, though, that every once in a while, particular politicians are put on a pedestal too much. Yes. And and you get yes. this cultish thing going on. Let me ask you this. It just occurred to me while you were speaking. When you were young and following the news and you were um, acting as Donna Burns, and you hadn't actually worked for elected officials yet, I'm sure you had some view of them. I don't know if you, you put them on a pedestal in some you know general way or not. And then having worked with them, and I'm not talking about a particular person, overall... Has your estimation of elected officials and people who run for office gone up or gone down through that process? It was confirmed. My estimation about elected officials was confirmed. As a young person, I used to actually want to be, I I played a TV reporter at home, but I wanted to be a judge because I thought judges and politicians were two of the most powerful people or, or things you could be in the world, actually, because judges uh they they have the power to decide people's lives in their in, in the palm of their hands they are are helping you know in enforce and uh, breaking down the law and then the politicians are the ones that make the laws that govern the society we live in every single day well i i figured out actually after i uh interned for my local mayor's office in college that some of the another group of powerful people were the people behind the politicians And because those are the people that help shepherd and guide the message and the strategy and the direction. But my my thought has been confirmed. Politicians, elected officials, aspiring politicians are some of the most powerful people in this country. They are not the most powerful, but one of the most powerful things you can be is an elected official, a governor, a mayor, a state legislative official, a county council person, a district attorney. How come you're not running? (laughs) I used to want to be a politician. I thought I was going to run for my city council seat. I'm from North Omaha, Nebraska, District 2. Shout out to District 2. I was shadowing my councilman at the time, and I uh, had to come to Washington, D.C. It was after I graduated. I used to do a lot of juvenile justice work for one of the organizations I was with. So I came for a meeting. And when you fly out of Nebraska, preach, you got to fly through Chicago or Atlanta to get to D.C. There are very few direct flights, especially now during COVID. And back then, there weren't as many direct flights. So I flew from through Chicago. And on my Chicago to D.C. flight, I'm sitting next to the most GQ'd out white boy you have ever seen. (laughs) He is fine. He got the hair. He got the nice suit on. He had a nice little briefcase. I said, what is who what, what does this man do? So I struck up a conversation with him. And at that point, that gentleman had to have been maybe 30 years old, maybe 31. And he was talking to me about how he used to work in um, D.C. for a member of Congress. 
And now he does consulting and he has some federal contracts and he does some work overseas. And I thought about him my entire trip to D.C. and my entire ride home. And I thought, why couldn't that be me? You know, county city council seats aren't going anywhere tomorrow. With my estimation, you're going to always need local elected officials. But my opportunity to go to D.C. and maybe do something that nobody that I know has done before, that window is not always going to be open. So let me try that. And if it doesn't work out, I can always go home. Well, I left in 2014 and never went back. I've only been back to visit ever but since. But is politics still a possibility for yourself in the future or not really? I don't think I want to be an elected official. I am enjoying, you know, getting my makeup done every day, pre, <laughs> and not having to figure out if if the campaign finance laws say it's okay for me to get my makeup right. done. Well, that's why I do a podcast. I, <laughs> no, no makeup necessary. That's why I draw you know, the line. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I like what I'm doing now, and I'm excited about this opportunity. A lot of people, um, someone asked me a couple weeks ago, uh, you know, have I ruled out ever going going back to the White House or going back to politics. And I want people to know that this is, you know, this isn't a, just a pit stop for me, something I'm doing in the meantime so I can recharge for politics. I am excited about this this opportunity and this show. I'm excited about not just being a part of the conversation, but facilitating the conversations people are having. It's what you're doing with your podcast. You are not just being a part of the conversation, you are actively influencing it. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I think so. I want to ask another question about about politicians. And, you know, I know some, and I've worked for for one, uh, Senator Schumer. And with most people, there is a delta. There is some differential between what they're like behind closed doors and when they're comfortable and relaxed with their staff or with their friends or with their family, and the way they are out in public on the stump or when they're meeting with with voters and at rallies and at you know marches and whatever the case may be. My question is, which of the people you have dealt with has the least amount of differential between their public persona and... Pro and I'm, I'm going to make a guess just based on something you said earlier. Uh, is it Bernie Sanders? I think, I think the most... I think the most who is just... You can catch him at any time and you're going to get the same thing is Senator Sanders because he literally has been saying the exact same thing for the last 40-something years. If you pull up a clip from... Senator Sanders in 2020, a clip from him in 2016, and a clip from him in 1992. If he's talking about the economy, he got that same riff. You know, Bernie Sanders' guiding principle is that we live, uh, or it, it was when I knew him, okay? He, he, his guiding principle may have changed, but I doubt it, Preet. And yeah, he I often <laughs> talked about the fact that, you know, we lived in a rigged economy kept in place by a system of corrupt campaign finance. So because we lived in a rigged economy kept in system by a, uh, kept in place by a system of corrupt campaign finance, we need to do this on closing the, the wealth gap. We need to do this on, uh, on taxes. We need to do this for healthcare. We need to do this when it, when it comes to criminal justice. It all comes back to that. Um, some could argue that's a great thing. Some could argue, I've heard criticism, that, you know, saying the same thing for the last 30, 40-something years isn't great because people should evolve over time. So, you know, I'm not here to, to to debate one side or another. I'm just here to lay out the facts in the conversation. But I also think that folks like um, that the, the president and the vice president, I I see the same person when they are out in public with folks that I have seen with them behind closed doors. You know, the president genuinely cares about people and he cares about his staff. Um, he is the person that will tell you to 
to go home? Like, are you missing something with your family? Like, forget about this and we will see you later. The the, the vice president is so endearing. You know, she gardens. Um, she has a garden at the vice president's residence. And she's also had one at her, her home in um, L.A. And... She, I don't cook free. Let me just. <laughs> Neither do I. Preface this with, I am not a chef. I'm okay. It's not me and my house is making sure we have a good meal. It is my fiance. And I told her once about my fiance and how he's a chef. And ever since I told her that when she would go home to her garden in LA and before she had her garden at the vice president's residence, she would always bring back herbs and she would bring me a little plastic baggie. And, uh, the herbs were for my fiance, Sean. And that continued when she, uh, moved into the vice president's residence. And then she started bringing them in for her staff. So she would put a little bowl outside her office in the West Wing and you could come in and get fresh things from the vice president's garden at VPR. So they, I, I think that people are, I genuinely think that I have not worked for any of the big names that people know that I've worked for. They are not a completely different person in private. But I do think that Senator Sanders is unique in that he, 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 he has just been saying the same thing for so long and he is completely unbothered. It's not that he doesn't care. He is just the most unbothered elected official I have ever met. Yeah. So, you know, of the people we've been discussing, the person I know personally the best is the vice president, Kamala Harris. Uh, we were colleagues in the law enforcement community, done some events together and we've been friendly for a number of years and I like her very much and I think she's a terrific person. What do you make? And then, you know, obviously you worked for her for a bit. What do you make of the criticism of her, not just on the right, but even in democratic circles, that that she's not she doesn't have accomplishments to your, to her name? Is that fair or not? I don't think it's fair, um, but I also think we have to look at the facts, right? And the facts are, up until Vice President Harris, could you could you tell me what the Vice President of the United States of America did every day? Did people want to know? Dick Cheney, Dick Cheney took a lot of liberty away. Except for <laughs> so Dick Cheney. I can tell you okay? about Dick. Except for Dick Cheney. Now, Dick Cheney is a notable exception here. And this is no shade to the president, no shade, maybe a little bit of shade to former Vice President Pence, but no, no shade to Pence. Could people didn't know what the, it's not common knowledge to know what the vice president does every day. That's just the facts. You know, you think you know what the president does every day, but I don't think people really understand what the president does every day. But they think they have an idea. They know that they are the president of the United States of America. So it must mean that they are at any given time picking up a red phone, making decisions. Right. Um, but it's not general knowledge about what the vice president does every day. And I do think that coming because she is a, a historic vice president, she is the first woman, the first woman of color, first black woman, first woman of South Asian descent. Um, to sit in that role, there's an expectation that because she's historic, she makes history every day. And that's not how the vice presidency works. And so I think the idea of what she is supposed to do and who people think she is supposed to be and, 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 and a number of these people, Democrats, runs into the reality of the vice presidency. So that's one thing. I do think that she, I think that there's valid criticism of, of, of every elected official. There's valid criticism of the president and of this White House, and there's valid criticism of the vice president. I think that oftentimes, though, the criticism of the vice president um, traffics in uh, racist tropes and sexism. Yeah. And I, I, I challenge people to, as when I used to work there, I would say to people like, look, you doing this story, I'm, I'm probably not going to like it. Ask yourself, would you write this story about Joe Biden? Ask yourself, have you ever thought about writing this story about Mike Pence or insert any other 
man who has ever been a vice president of the United States of America? And if the answer to that question is yes, carry on, send me your questions. But if the answer is no or you hesitate, I challenge you to think about what kind of bias has crept up into this reporting. We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Simone Sanders after this. Do you think that if in 2024 or leading up to 2024, Joe Biden, Joe Biden decides not to seek reelection, is there any other viable candidate other than Kamala Harris? So uh, there's a lot in that question, Preet, first of all. I know. That's why I asked it. (laughs) First, the fact is that the the, the President Joe Biden has said he is seeking reelection. That's it's a hypothetical. I know you don't want to answer the hypothetical it's a hypothetical. But in the event that he decides not to seek the presidency, I saw a panel, I'm not going to say where I saw the panel the other day, where people were talking about how, oh, it would be a free-for-all if uh, the president doesn't seek re-election. And I just think you have to look at the reality of American politics yeah. and the Democratic Party apparatus. And the reality of the apparatus is is that this uh, a sitting vice president or a sitting president is a very powerful person. Um, and in this case, if the president is why if the president, you know, he, he says he's running for reelection when he does, he has the opportunity to travel around the country. But every single day that he steps out to do his duties as president, whether he is campaigning or not, the American people are seeing him and it is coloring what they think about him as a kind of president that he is. And if they would like to vote for him again, it's a very powerful place to be. Well, the current Vice President of the United States of America, if the president does not run, run, would be very well poised. She has the bully pulpit of the White House to fly around and do her due diligence as the vice president of the United States of America. And everybody looks at her like, oh, as a can. And they are thinking about that as they look towards. So you wouldn't expect her to be challenged in a primary? Oh, I didn't say that. I think they're very, you know, you know, there's lots of ambitious people in the world. Is Senator Sanders done running? I don't know if he's done running. I know there was all that about that memo. Um, I, I don't really know if 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 that's real. You know, Senator Sanders has now twice sought the presidency, and he gained more votes last time in 2020 than he did in 2016. But I, I fundamentally believe that you cannot win a Democratic primary in the United States of America currently in this climate, nor a general election as a Democrat, without garnering a substantial amount of votes from African-American and um, his, Hispanic voters in America. It just the way the primaries are for the presidency are set up on the Democratic side of the aisle. You have to be able to win a substantial amount of, of black and Latino. And Latino voters. And if you can't, you're not going to be the nominee, let alone a general election. So that's what Joe Biden did in South Carolina, right? Yeah, South Carolina, but all of Super yeah. Tuesday. And while I think Senator Sanders could wage a very competitive race in a, in a general election, maybe he has to win a Democratic primary first. And I don't I, I, I don't see how I don't see what Senator Sanders has done different between 2016, 2020 and now that would cause a substantial amount of African-American voters and Latino voters to cast their ballot for him when there are other options and people on the ballot. So not to say that the vice president would be challenged. I just I just think that the, the way it's set up, she would win a primary. You mentioned Super Tuesday and one I was watching Joe Biden's you know victory speech <laughs> on Super Tuesday. So you know where this is going. And I hadn't thought <laughs> hadn't thought about it in a while until I was preparing for this interview. I can't remember how far the protester got, but I think there was a protester, an anti-dairy protester, <laughs> got on the stage. Remind folks what you did. 
I uh, grabbed the protester and dragged them off the stage. <laughs> with your bare hands. save, with my bare hands to save then-candidate Joe Biden and Dr. B and the president's sister, Valerie Biden. It, it seems funny in the after, like now, but in that moment, pre, we didn't know what was going on. There was We didn't have Secret Service at the time. Well, he didn't need to. Like, have you thought about a career in the Secret Service, actually? <laughs> Um, I, I, I mean, I guess there's still time. You know, you can't be a new Secret Service agent past the age of, I think, 35, though. You so got three years. I need to make a decision pretty quick. But again, I'm happy to be an anchor on MSNBC. <laughs> if this was a drinking game <laughs> and we had to take a swill every time we mentioned the show, I think your your producers would be very happy. They'd be very happy. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just playing to my audience of one. <laughs> I know. I let's let. I want you to handicap the other side. In 2024, if Donald Trump runs again. Do you think he pretty much wraps up the nomination if he wants it? Well, it depends on a few factors. Who else? We are. Let me just back up. Before we get to 2024, we are looking at midterm oh, yeah. elections. Well, yeah, tell me about that year, then. Correct? Let's start. Let's start there. And you've got you've got primaries that are happening all over the country. The first primaries kicked off in Texas um, in February. Actually, it was it, yeah, it was February. You got primaries in Ohio coming up. You got you got primaries all over the place. How the president, former President Trump, fares in those primaries with his endorsements and the kind of people that he is supporting makes a difference. Let me just tell you, crowds don't vote. I used to work for Bernie Sanders and he got the crowds. I mean, 15,000 people at one of our first West Coast swing rallies. Crowds don't vote. You cannot judge uh, what is going to happen at the polls based off the crowds people get at their political events. So I think really we have to look at the kind of endorsements that Trump has been making, how those candidates are faring, how the other pieces of the Republican Party apparatus are are feeling and 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 what they are saying and actively doing uh as it relates to the 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 Trump wing. My belief is that there are the Republican Party used to really only have two factions. You had your conservatives and then you had your Tea Party Republicans, right? Well, now there are many more factions. You got your QAnon caucus. You have Trump Republicans. You have uh, your more some some they would never call themselves left leaning, but but you know, but people that like to work across the aisle. Like we could go on. Given all of these different dimensions, uh, I, I I think looking at the midterms and who w- wins out where is a good determination on the Republican side of the aisle about what could happen in 2024. I know for a fact Donald Trump did not enjoy being president. I know that intimately, okay? So I find it very hard to believe that someone who did not enjoy being president would go through great lengths to, again, get the presidency. I think what Donald Trump enjoys most is people talking about him, our candidates yeah. coming and kissing No, 100%. Ring. But, but I, I, yeah. I, I agree with everything you said. But the reason why I'm of the view that even though he didn't love it, he might seek the presidency again is because if your goal is to be the most talked about person on earth, the way to do that is to be the sitting president. Well, folks continue to talk about Donald Trump and he isn't running for anything. Yeah, but I don't think he's the most talked about person. And, you know, it, it will hurt him. He is the most mentioned. He is the most mentioned person in rap music of all time. Is that true? It is true. Check not, me. Fact not, check me. It's not Elon Musk. It's not. <laughs> it he's not getting Elon talked Musk. about quite a bit. He's getting <laughs> talked about quite a bit. He got a ways to go. I mean, you think about who Donald Trump was before he was the the birther conspiracy, the racist birther conspiracy theorist who tried to take down the first black president, and then someone who ran, you know, the 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 
presidential campaign he ran that was filled and tinged with racism and sexism. He was someone that hobnobbed with the with celebrities, with the with the tastemakers and the and the culture movers, right? He he that's what he likes. And so I I you know, I don't know Donald Trump personally. I know some people that know him, but I don't know him, but my just belief is is that there is a lot actually happening within the Republican Party apparatus. And it is not a foregone conclusion that Donald Trump will be, if, if he decides to run, that he will be the nominee. Uh, it, it's just not. But if he is the Republican Party nominee, uh, I think everybody should expect to strap in and continue <laughs> to relitigate the 2020 election because that's what it's going to be about. My goodness. You, you said earlier that there are valid criticisms of Joe Biden. Do you want to give any examples? No, I just know they exist. <laughs> I thought I was going to get you on that one. Well, you, you said, <laughs> I think recently talking about your show, that'll be starting soon, that you hope for non-political group chats, which I think would be terrific. How on earth is that possible? <laughs> non-political group chats are all around us, Pre, You know, on my show, Simone, we're going to talk about the day's headlines, right? But we're also, we're going to go deeper. We're going to go into the stories that people all across this country care about. We're not just going to talk about what's happening in D.C. We're going to go beyond the beltway. We're going to talk about culture. Culture is arts, music, television, film, technology. The Elon Musk buying Twitter is actually not a political story. It's a culture story, or actually it's the intersection of the two. So that is something we would do with my, you know, my culture critics. You know, I love the housewives. Maybe the housewives make sense, Preet. I don't know. We haven't practiced it. But maybe the housewives might make sense for one of the segments. Think about it like this. We will have a political panel and think of our political panels similar to the panels folks see on Meet the Press Daily. So we'll have a reporter. And this is the way we have practiced it. We will have a reporter. Then we will have, you know, someone that's maybe a little more conservative. Somebody else is maybe a little bit more uh, blue and myself. And we will have the conversation. And I have practiced with some Republicans and some recovering Republicans. And you can expect to see those folks on my political panel. But I'm also going to do a culture panel, right? And of my culture critics. Do you know that NBC News has an internet culture reporter? I did not know that. I, I found out this week. Do you know that the NPR has a culture critic? Uh, every outlet has someone or a team, actually, who is dedicated to covering the intersection of politics and culture, the shifting ways in which uh, arts, TV, music, film, technology are influencing the, the lives that we live every single day. So we're going to have those conversations. And frankly, those are some of the conversations people are having in those non-political group chats. You said culture now a few times, and it reminds me of, I think, something very important that you said that I'd love for you to elaborate on. People talk about the culture wars, and they seem to be, you know, at a high fever pitch at the moment. And you have said the culture wars are not a distraction. The culture wars are the playbook. What do you mean by that? Yes. The culture wars are the playbook. The <laughs> A lot of my Democratic friends like to talk about the fact that folks should not be distracted by bills trampling on the rights of uh, women to make decisions about their own body or bills that are rolling back hard-fought uh, wins when it comes to voting rights or bills that are literally demonizing, vilifying, and putting the lives of LGBTQ plus people in this country in danger. We should focus on the economy. Well, let me just say some of my Republican friends, they aren't running on anything but those bills. Have you seen a tax plan, Preet? I haven't. Oh, I did. I did. Rick Scott said the Republicans going to raise middle class Americans taxes. I don't think that's gone over well, so much so that Mitch McConnell was like, we are not running on that. So it is the playbook. And I actually think 
that we are doing the American people a disservice by not digging in more and having real conversations about a number of these issues. It is not a distraction what is happening in Florida, Texas, or Kentucky. These are real people's lives. And frankly, the the bill that passed in, in, in Florida didn't say just LGBTQ plus people who are Democrats. It said LGBTQ plus people, period. There are trans Republicans. There are trans and gay and lesbian independents and Republicans in this country. You know, folks aren't, there's not an asterisk by voting rights only for people who are Democrats. No, they talking about if you are a young person, a person of color, if you live on a reservation, oftentimes it is disenfranchising old people, students. So I think we, instead of brushing these um, things to the side, we, we have a, in the media apparatus, we have a duty and a diligence to talk about them. And, and we're going to talk about them. We're going to cover the culture issues on my show. Frankly, Preet, I really think that if we had a 24-hour news cycle in 1963, 1964, 1965, there would have been some would-be commentators somewhere on some political panel on whatever network talking about Martin Luther King Jr. and the Big Five are really just, you know, these are the culture wars. And what they really need to focus on is the economy. Like, think about it. That's essentially what people are saying right now. Could you, could, it seems asinine to describe the, the, the fight for voting rights, the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act in 1965 as mere culture wars. But that's exactly what people are doing about these very pressing issues that are happening in our country right now. When you think about politics and messaging for Democrats, particularly when they're identified opponents on the other side of the aisle, do you from time to time try to put yourself in the shoes of the voters who might prefer the other candidate? And the reason I ask the question is, you know, I, I, I was in Florida recently mm-hmm. and talked to a friend of mine who I've known for a very long time. And I was a little bit taken aback because we're like-minded in a lot of ways, but, you know, have drifted apart politically in recent years. And he's a really smart person uh, who I've known for 30 years, who was speaking positively who was speaking positively about Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. and I hadn't considered why a person like that might find Ron DeSantis attractive because I don't do you have a theory as to why Republicans in Florida and not just Republicans but their independents he's made inroads with them mm-hmm. whether you you like him or not or agree with him or not do you have a theory as to why that is I think people are dynamic um, and people are dynamic when it comes to their taste in few food and music and uh, film and people are dynamic in their when it comes to their politics. And this goes back to you asked me how I describe myself and I said a pragmatic progressive Um uh, there's not a one size fit all type thing happening. And so I think that's how that is how your friend can have good things to say about Ron DeSantis and feel like that he has done a good job and probably disagrees with, with, with him on some other issues. Right. But people have nuance. I have people in my family who are very close to me who voted for president Trump. Some of my immediate family members voted for president Trump. Uh, what? So I am somebody that believes that everybody that, supports and that subscribes to Trumpism, everyone is not a racist, okay? Everybody is not. So there's nuance. So I do try to think about it from that vantage point um, when I'm trying to have conversations, which is why I want to make sure that if I'm doing a political panel on my show, I'm, I am I want to try to book a Republican or a recovering <laughs> Republican because I want somebody to unpack what is going on and what's happening from that perspective because it's a real one. One of your colleagues 
at your network. And I'm not allowed to say it too many times because I'm under contract with CNN, which I should say, I should say more CNN. <laughs> Come on, get your mentions up. Free. The most trusted name, the most trust, the most trusted name in news. <laughs> but one of your colleagues, some years ago, I was talking to her um, and I was just reminded of it by what you were saying. There are voters in America who voted for Obama, Obama, mm -hmm. Trump, and probably this was before Biden got elected, but but there are, in fact, voters who in Obama, Obama, Trump, Biden. It's not in the tens of millions, mm -hmm. but there's a lot. And that's an important fact, I think, further to the point you, you've been making throughout the show. Not everybody is like, you know, maybe some of our listeners are like, you know, you might be or I might be. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, down the line. Vote for the progressive candidate in presidential election since I was a voting age. But a lot of people aren't. Yeah. And that means we have to talk to people who do not live in L.A., San Francisco, Washington, D.C., or New York to figure out why, to get their perspective, to illuminate what is happening across the country. There there really are. It's a there are Romney. There are McCain where there are McCain, Obama, Trump, Biden voters. There are uh, there are Romney. Uh, there are Romney, Clinton voters, right? There are it, there are many different iterations of this. And that's why I love focus groups. That's why I love talking to real people. I actually don't care for the polls because, um, you know, you can you can make a poll say anything. You don't get the feeling, right? You just have a number and you like to get the spirit of where people yeah, are. Yeah, exactly. Focus groups, we can get the follow-up. And I think that we need more focus groups in America and we need more people who are forced to go out there and talk to people in their respective spaces and places. Final question about advice you might give to Democrats? And I've asked this question to various people before, and I'm sometimes surprised by the answer. How, how would you today complete the phrase made famous by the former first lady, when they go low, we go... <laughs> Come on, Simone. When, well, <laughs> well, when they, when, when, when they go, when they go low, it seems like we just go silent sometimes. Some All right. People. But what should, it, what, Look, sh what, what should we do when they go low? What should we do? <laughs> Look, I think when folks go low, um, <laughs> Democrats should not shy away from the fight. Some of these fights are worthwhile fights. Some of them are not. Right. And I, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about, during the Kataji Brown Jackson hearings, where uh, a number of the committee members, all of them Republicans who did this, essentially accused Judge Jackson of being a pedophile. And she sat there and she defended her record and uh, Chairman Durbin set the record straight. And then afterwards, I turned on my television across many networks and I looked on the Twitters and the Instagrams and I saw a number of strategists saying Republicans are the real pedophiles. How, how does that work? No, Republicans are not the real pedophiles. That's not why they're calling Kataji Brown Jackson a pedophile. They are accusing Judge Jackson of pedophilia because they are trying to speak to a very specific piece of the base of the Republican Party, the QAnon believers, because it is a core tenet of what people who subscribe to QAnon believe. They believe that everybody in Washington, all the Democrats in Washington, D.C. are running a child sex prostitution ring. So... That is why they were doing it. They're trying to score cheap political points and people need to call it out. That's what people should have said. Not accusing Republicans of being pedophiles. <laughs> what the hell is that? What is that? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're, I think you're right about that. And, you know, sometimes it, pay, it pays to be strong in language. I, I wrote about this and commented on it before with respect to, to Judge Jackson's mm -hmm. confirmation hearing. You know, at some point, Senator Cory Booker read the room and said what a lot of people were thinking. Yeah but didn't have, I think, the eloquence 
or the inkling to say. And you got to do that. There's that. Yeah. Praise the, praise the Lord for Cory Booker and God bless black men in America. Because Senator Booker did in that moment and stood in the gap for every single black woman in America, for every woman of color who has ever been essentially per- proverbially or actually shouted down in a meeting, cut off, talked over, had her credentials questioned. Judge Jackson was more qualified than every single person sitting up there in that panel questioning her. Okay. And she didn't, she, she couldn't break stride. She could not react. She had to be stoic. And every woman in America, but particularly every black woman in America understood the look on her face and the plight that she was enduring. And thank the Lord for Cory Booker for calling it how we all saw it and putting it on the record. You know, I think it was an extraordinary moment or number of moments when he spoke about those issues and spoke from his heart. Mm-hmm. Final question. I know you got to go. What advice do you give young people? Young people generally, and then young women, and then maybe more specifically young black women who see you as a role model and have seen your career and see how, you know, you didn't wait. You wouldn't shut up when someone told you to shut up. What do you, what do you say to folks who want, who want to do and accomplish things like, you'd ha- like you have? The advice that I would give young people is I'd give them three pieces of advice. First, ask for the thing that you know you have worked for. How many times do uh, we often ask for the thing right up under the thing we know that we want or the thing that we've worked for because that's what we think the proverbial they will give to us? No, I'm asking for the thing that I want and I'm going to make you tell me no. And oftentimes, if you ask for what you want and what you believe you work for, some a lot of times you're going to get it. At least that's been my story. I got a lot of no's, but I got some very good yeses, Pre, yes, some good yeses. The the second thing I would tell young people um, is that you you have to be able to do the work and you need to execute. I have never asked for a job or a position or uh, a, a, a space and place that I and I have not been able and, and not been able to perform when I get there. I, there, are, there are very few people in the world that can outwork me. I will get up early. I might not want to leave my house too early, but I will be up and I will stay up late. And there are people that are smarter than me. There's somebody out there that speaks better than I do. There's someone that knows how to read a teleprompter better than I can and someone with more experience. But there are very few people that can outwork me. And young people need to do the work. They need to get their research and be able to back up what you say and read. We got to read. okay? we got to get off Twitter and read. And the final thing I would say to young people out there, especially to my young women and my young women of color, my young black women, your authentic self is just okay. People broke down barriers so that I could host a show on televisions starting May 7th at 4 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays and on Peacock starting May 9th as a bald, curvy black woman from North Omaha, Nebraska with pointy nails, sometimes a bedazzled nail and, you know, a color block jumpsuit or a blue dress and a bold lip. But I know what I'm talking about. And so your authentic self is just okay. You don't have to put on anything to get into any of these rooms um, and pretend to be somebody else. I want young women, um, young people across the board, but young women and young women of color, especially to know that who they are is just all right. And if the people got a problem with it, the world needs to adjust. Okay. And they are adjusting pre they are adjusting a long time ago. Somebody told me I was not palatable enough for cable television. I don't know what they meant. (laughs) You know what they meant, but Maybe I was too bald, too black. I don't know. You know, you know what they meant. I don't know. Yeah. I wasn't palatable, but they're adjusting, Preet, and they're going to be real adjusted come Saturday. On that note, Simone Sanders, <laughs> thanks for being on the show. Congratulations on your success. 
and good luck with the wedding. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Preet. I will see you soon. My conversation with Simone Sanders continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by celebrating a true American hero who you may know about. It's chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. For those not familiar with Andres and his amazing work, he's the founder of the World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing meals to communities in the aftermath of natural and sometimes man-made disasters. Andres was inspired to start the organization in 2010 when he traveled as a humanitarian aid worker to Haiti after a 7.0 magnitude earthquake devastated the country. And in the years since, as you may know, he's focused on building an empowerment network of chefs who not only feed people, but also concentrate on four distinct areas of support around food, education, health, jobs, and social enterprise. In 2016, Andres' work with the World Central Kitchen earned him a National Humanities Medal, which he received at the White House. The organization, by the way, still operates in Haiti, providing food and resources to communities there. But they've also expanded across the globe in any place you can imagine, organizing hundreds of thousands of meals to communities facing disaster and supporting local chefs and producers. World Central Kitchen, led by Chef Andres, was feeding people in Houston in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey and in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. They fed people in the aftermath of a volcano eruption in Guatemala and after a hurricane in the Bahamas. They also set up a pop-up kitchen in DC to feed federal employees after the government shutdown in 2018 when workers couldn't get paid. And those are only a few examples. Chef Andres operates literally around the globe and serves up millions of meals to people who need them. Most recently, they've been operating in war-torn Ukraine. At the end of February, as thousands fled Ukraine in the aftermath of Russia's invasion, the World Central Kitchen set up mobile stations to deliver food to people in Odessa, Ukraine, and now he has locations all over the country. Photos and videos on Twitter show organization workers and Ukrainian chefs handing out hot chicken stew, soup, tea, and apple pie as people fled their homes. And that's just, again, a fraction of the work that Chef Andres and his organization has done. I mentioned this in part because this week I was able to attend a special screening of an amazing film, We Feed People, which was first released in March. The National Geographic documentary is directed by Academy Award-winning filmmaker Ron Howard and follows chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. I must say the movie was inspiring and emotional, and it made you think about how much suffering there is in the world. And I found that it reminded me of my absolute favorite quote from Mahatma Gandhi, who once said, there are people in the world so hungry that God cannot appear to them except in the form of bread. Think about that. I highly recommend that you become more familiar with the work of Chef Andres. I recommend seeing this film if you get the chance. And if you're interested in supporting the incredible and important work of World Central Kitchen, check out their website in the show notes to this episode.
Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Simone Sanders. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The technical director is David Tadashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy. And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer-Staten, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Sean Walsh, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.